Father, as we have seen from this video, the harvest is white in Salt Lake City. The opportunities are plentiful, but it is obvious that the laborers are few. For those few who are working diligently and consistently and passionately to share the good news of Jesus Christ, we pray that you would multiply their efforts in ways beyond our own understanding. And may the 98% of folks who are there believed to be lost, may many of them be won to Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us understand how our partnership in that gospel reaches way beyond the borders of these four walls. They are dependent on us and we are dependent on them. And Father, we pray that you would inspire us and encourage us to do what we can while we can. To share of our own resources and even our material wealth and the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. Help those who are in strategic places reach this nation for Jesus Christ. And may we see and sense a revival taking place. And may you receive the honor for it. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. In this short life of mine, I have discovered a simple truth, and that is that some things are easily acquired, but they are not so easily maintained. I think about the first vehicle I purchased. As a teenager, I was looking forward to that experience, and uh, my parents were not one of those who said, pick it out, we'll pay for it. They said, you can pick it out, but you have to pay for it. So I had to save, I had to work. And for months on end, I did that until I had the down payment that they required of me before I went and purchased the vehicle. Now I said down payment. I didn't pay for it in full. I had to borrow some money. So as a teenager, that was my first official loan at the bank, I guess. And so I remembered what it was like writing that check every single month. Paying them back. Paying them back. On time. Every time. And it happened. But I wasn't just making a monthly payment, you know, there's a tag that you have to pay for every year, it's renewed, that's an expense. Not to mention there's fuel, oil changes, tires wear out, so much upkeep associated with the expense of a vehicle that I didn't quite understand until I actually experienced it. It was easy to go to bank, go, go to the bank and sign that paperwork. It was easy to go sign, you know, for the title and do all of that and actually be given the keys. That was the easy part. The difficult part was maintaining the vehicle. How about the first time we got a puppy? Have you had that lovely experience? Now most of you probably said we've had dogs our whole lives. We know what that's like. If you live on acreage where dogs can be outside and you can enjoy their company, I love 
animals of all kinds. I, I, I wish we had a dog now, but my wife won't let me have one. But I remember what it was like as a family when we got our first dog when our girls were young. It's, a, it's, it's like having a baby, right? I mean, a, another life has presented itself that demands attention. It has to be fed, it has to be watered, it has to be cleaned, has to be trained. And there's so much up, you can't just go anywhere that you want to go. When you want to go, you got to figure out, what are you going to do with the dog? Who's going to go home during the day and let it out? Take care of it? It was easy to go pick one out, just get the one with a happy tail, you know. Happy ending, that one that's barking at me. But it's not so easily to maintain it. That's sort of the point that I want to make this morning about the Christian life. Sometimes I think we look back and say, you know, as a child, maybe even as a young adult, senior adult perhaps, it was easy for us to give our hearts to Christ and to say, of course, I want to be known as God's son, God's daughter. And we willingly walk through that experience. But for those of us who've been Christians for some time, we know that the maintenance of this Christian life is a little more difficult than what it is for us to actually become a Christian. I'm just being honest with you this morning, and I think most of us understand that. As a child, I was nine years old, almost ten, when I became a Christian and was baptized. And at that time, our church was using a little piece of curriculum that was called the Survival Kit. I wonder if anybody here remembers the Survival Kit, written by Ralph Neighbor from Houston, Texas. Nobody? Okay, well, I'll tell you about it, a few of it. In that survival kit, it talked about Bible study and prayer and worship and sharing your faith and all of those disciplines that are important in growing spiritually. And I look back on that and wonder, was, was I not paying attention? Because after all, the title said the survival that's what you give to somebody when they're going out to the wilderness, right? <laughs> That's what you say to someone when they're, 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 they're entering the military. They're going to boot camp. Hope you survive, brother, sister. Well, here's the deal. God not only wants you and me to survive, he wants us to thrive as Christians. And I think a lot of what we experience that we would classify as struggle in this Christian walk, in this Christian life, maybe our own doing, decisions that we make, directions that we walk, things that we entertain in our minds that we know are not healthy and will not promote spiritual growth. And God says, when you go in that direction, you're going to struggle. But all of us know that there are also things that enter our lives that we didn't cause, that we didn't invite, that are not welcome and are certainly not pleasant. 
How in the world are we going to respond to these kinds of circumstances and situations? That is the focus of our study. God wants us to maintain our walk with Him. God wants us to grow spiritually. God wants us to grow stronger spiritually. But it's a challenge. Anytime you let this idea or this, this commitment slide, you're going to suffer for it. That's what we're learning in Ephesians chapter 6. That is our home base for our study as we talk more about spiritual warfare. And if you want to turn to Ephesians 6, that's fine. Just kind of mark that with your thumb. I'm only going to make reference to one simple verse there. But I really want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to camp out just for a few moments this morning as I show you some things that I think are illustrated and mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, put on the whole armor of God in order that for the purpose of standing firm when you encounter the schemes, that's the methods or methodologies of the devil. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual forces and principalities in this world. God, Paul is opening our mind to a vista and an understanding of more of what's going on in our lives than what we can see. And the quicker that we can give attention to it, the better off we'll be. Here's what we've talked about. We, we've talked about, I didn't mention it this way last Sunday, but last Sunday was the introductory sermon. And in last Sunday, really what I was trying to do was to sober you up. Now, that's just an expression. That's all it is, just to sober us up. Help us to get our attention a little bit focused on this spiritual conflict that all of us can and do experience as children of God. Next Sunday morning, we're going to start suiting up as we learn about the pieces of the armor that God gives us and I'll go ahead and uh, give you a trailer here. This is it's called an advertisement, for those of you who don't know what a trailer is. When we suit up on the armor of God, you know what we're going to be putting on? The very nature of Christ. Every part of His personality and persona, we are going to be acknowledging and accepting and embracing and asking that He be revealed in and through our lives. So we sober up, we're going to suit up, this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to size up. We're going to size up the enemy. Because Paul says very easily, very carefully, we fight against the schemes and the methodologies of the devil. Here's an interesting thought, and I struggled with trying to figure out how I was going to present this to you this morning. There are some parallel passages in the Bible to Genesis 3. The first that comes to mind is Matthew chapter 4. 
In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, we read the story of how Jesus was tempted by Satan. And I'm going to make reference to that as we walk through Genesis chapter 3. The other parallel passage is not actually one little passage of verses that are nice and neatly packaged in the Old Testament, but they are found throughout the book, is found in the book of Job. And when you look at Genesis chapter 3, you study Matthew chapter 4, and you pull together all of these experiences that Job had as we read about his troubles, his pressure, his trials in that Old Testament book, which by the way we think is the oldest book in the Bible, here's what you're going to find, that Satan attacks us about, about three different fronts. Here they are, body, mind, and spirit. Now, look at Genesis 3 and let me bring all of that into focus for it. Look at what it says. We know about Genesis 1 and 2 that tells us the creation story. Genesis 3 is about the fall of man when Adam and Eve first sinned. Look at what it says. Verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, body, and that it was a delight to the eyes, mind, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, spirit. She took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Three things I want to mention this morning just for us to think about. The first, I want you to see the landscape of this passage. Now, when I say landscape, what I'm really talking about is, before we dive off into it a little deeper, I want you to back up and see the bigger picture, okay? And you've got to be willing to do that for me before you can understand the more detailed part of what I think the Bible is revealing to us here. First thing I want you to notice is the word serpent. In the English translations, we are introduced to that noun, that noun that refers to Satan himself. Satan reveals himself to Eve in the Garden of Eden as a serpent. But in the Hebrew text, that's the first word. And in the Hebrew text, the first word is always the most significant word. It is the word that has the most emphasis on it. The word serpent in Genesis 3, 1, actually is referred to as the shining one. 
Now, it's easy for us from this perspective, from this landscape view, to be able to look at this and say, ah, that's where he tempted Eve. But if you and I had been Eve, and we had been living that very experience of the serpent revealing himself to us, he would have revealed himself to us not in a moment of danger, and we would have cried, danger, stranger, right? Stranger, danger, what? He presented himself as an appealing individual, as someone that was pleasant to be around. And if the devil always would present himself as someone who showed us the negative consequences of what's going to happen to us, if we embrace what he's offering us, I think it would be much easier for us to say no, right? We would turn him down every time and say, I I don't want any part of that. But the thing is that he comes to us in this appealing sort of way. He's enticing Eve because he's the shining one. And somebody might say, well, she just naturally gave in. I mean, she was the weaker of the two and she gave in. Here's what I want you to understand. So many people have the idea that Satan, the devil can overpower us any time that he wants. Nothing could be further from the truth. You and I, as born-again believers, have the strength, have the power, have the resources, all that is needed for us to say to his temptation, whether he presents himself as a pleasant, appealing experience or something that we know is dark and dangerous, We have the ability to say no, no, no. And that's what we should say. Here's why the devil has no power over us. He is superhuman because he was created as an angel. But the devil was a created being. Angels were created for the purpose of service to God. We read about that in the Old Testament, actually Isaiah 14, where it talks about how Satan was placed in a prominent position in heaven, and he was referred to as the shining star. He was referring uh, to the morning star, that first uh, star that you would see just, just before the break of dawn, just about. And we know that Satan had this uh, purpose in heaven to lead and worship. And the idea here is that Satan was the one, Lucifer, that angelic being who in heaven took part in the worship of God and he became so consumed with the praise and the glory and the experience that he said, this is what I want for myself. He was not only a created being, but he was a corrupt being. In that sense, he fell as an angel. I'm just going to read to you from Isaiah 14. Listen to what Isaiah says as he refers to that pre-creation experience when he fell from heaven. This is verse 13 of Isaiah 14. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the earth. Listen to this. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You know what Isaiah is revealing here? Satan had eye trouble. (laughs) 
Everything that he said was like Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't it? I, 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 I've done this. I, I, I have the ability. I have the power. Satan was corrupt in that sense. He's a corrupt being now. But he's also a condemned being. You read on in Isaiah 14 and you'll discover that Isaiah predicts and says, but there's coming a day where God is going to sentence you in that language, Sheol, but we understand that as hell. God is going to condemn you to a place where you are totally alienated from all other beings and from God himself. And we know that in Revelation chapter 20, there is coming a day out there in the future where God will bring to an accountability experience Satan and all who follow him and all of those who are not Christians. And the Bible says that he will condemn them and sentence them to hell itself. Now for you and me, that's a happy thing. That, 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 but the problem is Satan knows that. And because of that, he is filled with all the wrath and fury that he can embody because he knows that his days are numbered. He knows the urgency of tempting you and me. Our problem is we're not too bothered by it. We're not too concerned about being aware of the spiritual forces at work against us. And in that sense, he's caused us to drift off into this slumber state. And this state, what I will call an ignorant state, but I don't mean ignorant, I just mean we're, 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 not, we're not, we don't care. State of apathy. The devil has no power over us unless we give him the opportunity to overpower us. And in that sense, really, it's an act of our own volition to say, yes, I will participate. I will sin against God because I choose to do so. Now, that's, that's, that's the first landscape thing I want you to think about. Here's another thing I want you to think about. He presents himself to Eve in the garden. Who's not mentioned in this tempting exchange? Adam, right? Some have suggested that Eve has distanced herself from Adam and because she has distanced herself from Adam, she is more vulnerable and susceptible to the temptation of Satan. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not. Adam may have been right there with her. It's not mentioned. It's not, we're not told that he was absent. If it said that explicitly, we could say confidently, Adam was not there. Here's what, I, here's what I suspect, that had Adam been there, Adam would corrected her when she misspoke. Some of you are saying, when did she misspeak? Well, remember when Satan asked her about the, the fruit of the tree and, and what they could eat? Look, look at what she says here in, in verse, uh, let's see, in verse, well, in verse 3. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, this is Eve talking, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. You know what happens? You'll read chapter 2 where God gives them an explanation of the fruit of the trees that they can participate in and eat up. God never said they could not touch that fruit. But Eve did. 
And I'm pretty sure had Adam been there, he would have said, uh, sweetheart. <laughs> That's what every husband says when they're about to correct their wife, right? Sweetheart, darling. God didn't say that. She's di- Here, here's the point I'm making. That when you and I distance ourselves from those that love us, and those people that we love, we may find ourselves weaker, spiritually speaking. But what I do know is that when you do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together and you are willing to remain together as a body of believers, whether that's true as a family unit or true as a congregation, you will draw strength from each other. And because we love each other and care for each other and pray for each other, you know what you'll find? You have more strength when you go out and you are tempted by Satan. Now, that's, that's just the landscape view that I want you to see. Here's the language that I want you to see that takes place in Genesis chapter 3. And the first thing I want to show you is this verbal exchange between Satan and Eve. And Satan is crafty. I mean, that's what the Bible says here. He was a very crafty being. He's subtle in his ways, but he knows how to trick us and cause us to think in terms that ordinarily we would never think. Here's what I want to show you. Satan is good at taking statements of God and changing the punctuation. What does he do here? He removes a period at the end of the sentence and he replaces it with a question mark. Has God really said this, Eve? And then she responds. Now, just as an obvious sort of thing for us to understand, let me just say this to you. When Satan asks you something, don't answer. (laughs) When When he deposits a thought in your mind, don't entertain that thought. Because what you see here is that she is going back and forth with Satan, back and forth over looking at the fruit and causing her to think about it in a different sort of way. And then it comes there and says that when she saw that it was good for food, body, pleasant to the eyes, mind, and that it would actually make one wise. She embraced the idea that Satan had thrown out there. God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to become like him. You'll be just as wise as him. She totally embraced that idea. And that's when she actually gave in and ate it herself and then gave some to Adam. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. What is the first temptation? Turn these stones into bread. Jesus had been fasting. He was hungry. Satan knew that. And Satan appealed to that primal natural need of food. He's going to attack our bodies. What did he do with Job? The soil, the boils, remember? The sores on his skin. Well, well, why would Satan be interested in our bodies? Ah, our bodies, we are told, are tools of God. Noah built the ark. Moses went back and physically presented himself to Pharaoh and led the nation out of Egypt. God is constantly using individuals to physically do something for him. We understand that. What about mind? The mind is the control center of the body, right? 
And Satan likes to go in and just change the wiring around a little bit and cause us to think a little differently. Because Eve began to look at the fruit, whatever it was, notice I'm very careful not to call it an apple, whatever it was, and said, you know, it is pleasant to look at. It is something that I think is very appealing and enticing, which leads me to believe that she'd not done that in the past. But now she's taken time to do that. Now, now understand something about entertaining the thoughts that come into our heads. Thoughts that enter our minds may not be God-honoring, but may not necessarily be a sin either. You and I are exposed to a wide variety of things on any given day that are not God-honoring. At that moment, when we take in that information in our mind, we have to make the decision, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to let it stay there? Am I going to toss it back and forth and think about it a little bit? Or am I going to dismiss it and move on and know that that is not a part of my nature as a Christian anymore? I love what Billy Graham used to say. Billy Graham said, well, you know, uh, you can't control the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. Well, the same is true with thoughts. You can't prevent thoughts from coming into your mind. And we need to be higher thinking individuals. In other words, we need to not just take what we're given at face value and accept it and say, well, that's obviously the truth. We need to analyze it. We need to examine it. Socrates, who was not a Christian, but a Greek philosopher, I think understood this perfectly when he said, I ask questions of my students, he said, because I want them to learn what I already know. I think teachers need to do that. In the form of questioning, you can lead students up to that critical moment of discovery of truth that they embrace and they will, they will receive it and they will welcome it so much more than if you just force feed it and spoon feed it to them. So the mind that God has given us is a valuable thing, but it's also a part that Satan wants to tamper with and he wants to change a little bit. What about the... What about with Jesus in the wilderness? Remember, Satan said to him, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will protect you. What was he doing? He was asking Jesus to test the promises of God. It was an act of the mind. And Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then look at the last thing here where he tempts Eve in a spiritual sort of way that she says, oh, I know that by eating of this fruit, it will make me wise. It will make me like God. How did Satan do this with Jesus in the wilderness? You'll remember Satan took him to a point and showed him some property. And he said, look at all this, all that you can see. Bow down and worship me and I will give it to you. Let me tell you something. I laugh at that point because Satan was foolish. How many of us have ever gone and gotten something out of our parents' closet or maybe, uh, you know, the nightstand drawer or whatever and wrapped it up and gave it back to them as a birthday present or Christmas gift, you know? I know of a child that did that one time, gave their, parent, uh, their, their father a pocket knife and more the dad, rec- you know, looked at it and he said, well, I bought this about 20 years ago. You can't give somebody something they already own. That's what... The devil was trying to do with Jesus. 
in the wilderness. And what he was doing with Eve by playing with her mind, by trying to convince her that if she partook in the eating and consumption of that fruit, whatever it was, that that it would do something for her that God never intended uh, for her to know about or to experience. And that's a part of the lives of Satan. You see, he wants to convince us that God's trying to withhold us the best part. Nothing could be further from the truth. So the language here is important as you look at the way that Eve just entertained everything that Satan put in. Don't do that. Dismiss it for what it is. And understand that our truth must be acquired from a valued source. And that source is none other than the scripture where Jesus reveals himself and his will to us. But there's a last thing I want to mention here. And that's the lesson. Not just the landscape and the language, but I want you to leave with a lesson this morning and understand where I'm coming from. As much as God loves us, Satan hates us. Just understand that. As much as God wants to encourage us, Satan wants to discourage us. As much as God wants to build us up, Satan wants to put us down. Satan is not interested in you or me being better individuals in any sort of way unless we are better followers of him. It's all about him, him. Just like Isaiah 14, I, 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 I. Satan is all about him. He knows his days are numbered. He knows he's already been condemned. He knows what his future is. And we should know what our future is. And the lesson for you and me is to understand that he's going to come at us. You don't have to go looking for him. He'll he'll find you. And he'll tempt you. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to make you alert and aware. For our seasoned veterans here this morning, we know how that works. But the power to resist And the ability to overcome, it's ours. It's ours in Jesus Christ. It's ours because we are followers of Him. And as long as we walk with Him and He walks with us and we don't alienate ourselves, you will discover that the power of Christ becomes your personal power. To see the world as He sees the world. To love your family and neighbors and friends and even strangers in the way that God sees them and loves them. 1939, there was one lone voice in the world who was saying to international leaders, look at Germany, look at Germany, look at what Hitler's doing. Nobody wanted to listen. Nobody wanted to go to Germany. Nobody wanted to pay any attention because most people discounted Adolf Hitler as a paper hanger, as a man who was trying to build a house with cards, as somebody who wanted to be somebody, but everybody knew he would be nothing. And you and I know the truth of that. Within four years, the world, the free world, was almost lost because people did not pay attention. December the 7th, 
1941. The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and pulled the United States in to international conflict. The next day, Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation and made an appeal and asked for civilians to suit up and fight the enemy so that we would be sure to win the war. And the rest is history because you know we came out victors in that battle. I'm asking you, ladies and gentlemen, to suit up. For the battle is not ours. It belongs to the Lord. And we are already victors in His sight. You stand with me this morning. Father, I pray that for every person who goes by the name of Christian this morning, that we could leave this service being mindful and grateful for the way that you have paved the paths that we should walk. We don't trust ourselves and lean on our own understanding. We trust you and lean on you. And believe, Father, that as we get up every single day, we get up suited to face the enemy. We do not live our lives in fear. We do so with joy and contentment and peace. And I pray, Father, that all of us who go by the name of Christian today would leave grateful and thankful for who you are and what you're accomplishing in our lives. But Father, if there's anyone here today who's yet to publicly acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, somehow, some way, by your Spirit, you would convince them of the need to do that. And Father, that they'd be willing to come this morning and say, yes, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to follow him in baptism, church membership, and I want to ask this church, Help me grow in the faith I claim to possess. Father, we give ourselves to you, praying that you would have your will, your way in our lives. And we give this invitation on your behalf. Through Jesus we pray.